Hi, I'm Ali. And I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write. The podcast about writing, publishing, and creativity amongst life's many other demands. I'm joined this week by Chloe Timms. She is an author, podcaster, and a former teacher based in Kent. Her debut novel, The Sea Women, is out now. As well as fiction, Chloe has campaigned and written extensively about disability rights and accessibility. And her podcast, Confessions of a Debut Novelist, is 25 episodes in. And Chloe is responsible for me purchasing many new novels this year. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Chloe. Hi Penny, it's lovely to be here with you today to uh, discuss all things writing and my new novel as well. It's so nice to talk to another podcaster. Firstly, I love it so much. I love the podcast so much. Um, It's been such a joy. I'm always so excited when there's another UK-based writing book podcast. Um, There's just something so amazing about, I don't know, the intimate chats you can have with a writer about um, with another writer about the process as well as the content because some podcasts only maybe go into the content of the book and it's so nice to be able to kind of go deeper into the process and what it's like to publish as well. Oh definitely and I and I've had so many people um, say to me how pleased they are that it's a UK-based podcast and there's so many US ones out there and it was nice to give the the UK a bit of attention as well and I not that this was the reason for starting the podcast, but one of the things I, I always hope when I when I do a chat with a writer is that one day someone's going to give me this nugget of advice and that's going to transform my writing process and make it so much easier. That hasn't happened yet, but I'm still hoping that day will come. Okay, at the end of this episode, we're, I think we're going to swap advice. I've had some advice that has been amazing on this one. I don't know if... Like no magic bullets, sadly, if only, right? But we'll have to we'll yeah, have yeah. to do some advice swapping at the very end. But let's start with the sea women because um, oh my goodness. Well, first of all, um I I so enjoy I enjoyed it so, so much. Um can we talk just for a second about how incredible the cover is as well? Oh my God, like, even the proof is just so beautiful. I'll just describe for the listeners, it's an island, it's a like from above, but the, the sea around it is sort of forming the shape of a woman with a, with a mermaid's tail as well. And it is just so stunning. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to have a look at the cover. Um, but, um, but I want to talk about where this all began. Um, it's speculative fiction um, and it's really, it feels very, very contemporary, but there's also elements of it being a bit historical. But so let's, let's start with you describing, can you give us a little brief um, rundown on what the book is about? Yeah, so The Sea Women is dystopian fiction, as you mentioned, but it sort of has a fantastical edge to it as well. It's been described as The Handmaid's Tale meets The Shape of Water, which I think is a really nice way of describing it, actually. Mm. So it's about Esther, who's, uh, we see her um, as a child through her kind of adolescence, and it's a kind of coming of age story for her. She's orphaned, she lives with her grandmother, and they live on this island, which is called Eden's Isle. And it's run by a very strict religious cult who very much control by the use of fear. So it's fear of the outside world, fear of damnation, and most importantly, fear of the sea and the creatures within it, which they know as the sea women. And so Esther is a bit of an outsider. She doesn't really fit in with the kind of the doctrine of the island as much as she tries to, and she's always tempted a little bit by the water and, and what the, the water holds, really. And one day she does something which kind of changes her perspective on the world and the, the life that she knows begins to unravel. I, it was, I, I really loved the setting. The setting is really, really incredible and so powerful and kind of really visceral and sensory and there's just so much wonderful sensory detail in there but also there's something really lovely about the the kind of various levels that it's working at because the um there's the kind of there's the physical isolation of the island itself being hemmed in completely by water which they've been taught to be afraid of and then there's also the obviously the psychological isolation and the emotional isolation the the way the religion works is very much sort of um as you said, fear-based and um, and really isolate everybody from each other. There's a lot of surveillance going on. It had, it reminded me a lot of the Crucible 
by Arthur Miller, which I, I do, I'm, I'm guessing you know. You know, yeah, but it had I, that I've same at school actually. Wait, yeah. <laughs> well, it has that same kind of real sort of surveillance, you know, um, of kind of creating so much fear within a community that they all kind of watch each other very, very carefully. But there was something so incredible about the setting of an island where um, how easy it is for. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the more powerful people on that island to make people afraid to leave so they don't even attempt to leave. Um, so I guess I was wondering, is that where the story began? Is it sort of, was it the setting where it all started or was it Esther that it all started with? A bit of both, really. So originally, way back when, 2014, I wrote a poem which was about a woman on a coastline who fell in love with a man that came out of the water But in this poem, it was a woman who couldn't swim. And it was an idea that I kind of kept coming back to and kept thinking about because I wanted to do more with it. And then I went uh, back to university and did a master's in creative writing. And one of the modules, I ended up kind of starting a short story where I still had this idea at the back of my mind. And I started writing about an island that was uh, like a run by a regime and that was a very closed off society because I kept coming back to this idea of who would live on an island and not be able to swim. Mm. So that was the kind of uh, the kind of contradiction I was working with really. And I think I kept going back to dystopia as well because now I know the kind of the handmaid's tale has become almost a bit of a cliche now because everyone has some knowledge of it, be it kind of politically or watching the TV show, reading the mm. book. But I read it back in school and I'd never heard of it. I'd never come across it. And it totally transformed my idea of a fiction, really. And I was completely blown away by it. And it was it was a novel that's always sort of stayed with me and been a favourite. And so as much as kind of I'd always had this character, this woman who was in this kind of forbidden love story, a woman who kind of had her her boundaries drawn around her, really. Mm-hmm. The island and her kind of came came simultaneously, I suppose. So I, I can't really say one came before the other. They kind of came together. Yeah, and they do really feel like the uh, like they paired almost. And I really love how the story works on all those multiple levels. It really um it really is such an interesting way of exploring also a way of exploring power and control Mm. as well um it was it was so um it was so clever the way the society had built up this fear it was so clever um that um that the way that cults do where they kind of basically make it impossible for you to even want to to leave and want to because they make everything so undesirable outside of outside of this tiny little controlled unit but also Esther herself, you know, she's an outsider for quite a lot of reasons because of her family history. She's raised by her grandmother rather than her parents who have died. Um, and there's a lot of kind of a lot that she doesn't understand about what happened with her parents. Um, and her mother is sort of referred to as as, um, as, a, as an undesirable in some ways, although it's not really referred to very much. And um, and she also has a facial difference. She has a scar. And there's another character who won't, I won't do any spoilers, but there's another character who has, has a lot of differences as well and is also very isolated um and it's just really interesting I I wonder I I was wondering whether your disability had anything to do with kind of being drawn to writing about these characters who are sort of you know part of society but at the same time slightly outside of society Mm, I think definitely maybe not consciously but probably subconsciously I I kind of always drawn to that outsider narrative and I think because I'm disabled, I think I'll always lean towards those narratives that I think it's just kind of instinctive almost. Um, It's odd, really, because I am really, really passionate about there being better representation in terms of disability and fiction, and particularly adult fiction, um, because we just really don't see enough of it. And um, when we do, it's it's kind of poor stereotypes, really. But I I didn't write particularly about disability or aim to write a story about disability and I, and I am kind of of the belief that you need to be quite good at introspection when you write about something that's so close and so personal mm-hmm. to yourself and I felt like particularly for my debut I didn't know that I was ready for that yet and also yeah. I guess I can touch on it in a thematic way but maybe writing so directly about disability I'm not quite there yet but certainly writing about outsiders I think um, that is obviously something I can really relate to. So I suppose 
they often say that when you write your first book, there's a lot of you in it. And I guess myself comes out in those characters in particular. Yeah, but that's what's so interesting to me because I think, and I, I feel like as well, there's so much there's so much richness in fiction. There's so much you can do thematically. You don't necessarily, although I totally agree, we need more representation in fiction. Um, it doesn't mean there has to be direct representation for the qualities of it to come through. Um, I already knew of you already when I received my, my lovely proof because I've been listening to your podcast and I read it and I was like, oh yeah, I can, I can see that particular perspective here in a really gorgeous kind of rich way. Um, but yeah, so that was just really. Yeah, it was really, it was something I really noticed about some of the characters in, in the book. And the other thing that I found really interesting is that um, in a society that you were writing about, you know, female friendship is really complex because you're talking about it's an extremely patriarchal society. So friendship is, is not particularly encouraged. Light friendship between the girls and women is encouraged, but not kind of deep, trustful um, relationships partly, I guess, because of the level of surveillance and they're, they're very much um, encouraged to, um, to watch each other and make sure everyone's behaving as, they, they, as they're supposed to because the society is so, is so what their, their paths are so kind of laid out ahead of them. So I was, it was really lovely to see some of those friendships develop but also be incredibly complex because of the society they're in, um, particularly with Mal, but also with Nora, who she who she comes to know, who's a midwife, who's a, which is another very complex role to play in a society like this. Yeah, I think particularly the friendship with Mal, I really wanted to explore the kind of the complexity, like you said, the duplicity almost, because like you say, it's almost suspicious for women to be very close and very friendly and um there are times where you sort of uh, you almost wonder how much you can trust that friendship because mm. of, you can't really expose yourself to your friend in that way and I know Esther certainly feels that way she's she has that struggle and particularly with Mull because Mull is Father Jessup's daughter Father Jessup is the kind of the leader of the society so Mull is the almost the worst possible person she could have as her she's the most she's probably the most privileged mm. girl and then woman in the society because obviously the women, none of them are privileged at all, but she's probably got the highest status in a way, hasn't she, because of her family. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Even though within her family she gets mistreated because she is the only daughter of, of the family. Um, and I also wanted to, I kind of wanted to touch on the almost like the betrayal of other women really, of mm. women who are caught up in their own misogyny and like you say with being led by such a patriarchal society that they fall into the trap of being judgmental and being I mean you think of a character like Seren who is just a horrible person <laughs> because she is so judgmental and she's so fixated on being a mother and um, being married and and being the good mother and being the perfect wife and things and so she you know you feel like with her She'd stab you in the back very quickly just to kind of get further in, in the society. And so, yeah, I wanted to kind of explore the role that other women have um, in, in that same kind of control that the men have and, and, um, and the way they're complicit in the society as well. Mm. And it's, and you can see it's it's such an instinct for, to, for survival for these women. You know, they are so, so controlled. Um, and have so little choice. And in fact, you know, the men don't have a huge amount of choice either. They have slightly more control over their lives, but not that much more control. Um, and so you can really see the desperation for survival um, and, and just the, the huge risks that some of them take to support each other that, you know, a few of them do take some risks to support each other, but it's, they are taking huge, huge risks um, because of how controlled the society is. But yeah, it's such an interesting um, setting in which to explore female friendship. Yeah, yeah. And like you mentioned, I think Nora is one of those characters that we learn kind of the extent she'll go to to, to support others, risking her own life in the process. And I, I did want to show kind of the other side as well of women that would put themselves at risk, in danger to support other women, because obviously we see both sides of the coin in, in our own lives and in, in a contemporary setting as well. Mm, yeah. I mean, this is the thing is that you're, you know, you're, it's speculative fiction, but, but we can see echoes of everything that's in the book 
in mm. our society. You know, you, there's a lot about um, in the book about kind of, you know, how rape culture is allowed to kind of thrive um, and how sort of, you know, small, tiny, small things when they're allowed and they're encouraged almost in boys, you know, leads to very, very unsafe environments for women and how they're all linked together. I thought that was so beautifully done as well, because even though it's a bit more extreme in their society than, you know, than we have in the UK right now, it's all there. It's all here in our current society. It's just slightly more hidden. Um, And you can see that linkage throughout the narrative. Yeah, I was very, very keen on not kind of, making things too unbelievable in terms of the society. And and uh, despite having the kind of fantastical element as well, I wanted everything to feel possible. And I, I did a lot of research into, into cults and um, kind of extremist religious groups to, to look at behaviour and the treatment of women particularly. Um, I read a lot of memoirs of women who had, had left cults and things because I wanted to make it believable that women had gone through these things and were and are going through these things. Um, and how that culture pervades the society because it's encouraged in the boys. It's, you know, it's seen as the norm. They see their their fathers and their uncles and their brothers do it. So it's seen as acceptable. And it's and and the boys in the novel, they they see it as a way to fulfill their ambition is to is to treat these women horrifically. And uh yeah, I, I wanted everything to to feel like it was very grounded and and very real, like you say, kind of. Uh, an extreme version and I was also kind of cautious that I didn't want anything to feel gratuitous in terms of the violence so I, mm. I, I was very careful in terms of um, making sure it was all things that were believable or things that had happened throughout history nothing that was just there for the sake of being there. Yeah and I, I think one of the strongest scenes is very very early on um, where one of the girls crescent when their young children is is humiliated in front of all the other girls. And there was something about that scene of a really simple kind of humiliation that is so, it so sets the tone for the kind of society that this is. Mm. Um, and it's not a violent scene or anything like that. It's just, but that kind of deep shame that she is put through and then how how everybody else in the society then sort of um, runs with it essentially. Um, yeah. And, and it's one of those things where you see, I mean, there's an incident before that where she, she's publicly uh, punished as well. And it sets the the tone for the rest of her life. And we find mm-hmm. out that she's actually had a, a very miserable life because it's essentially scarred her from a very young age. And she then becomes vulnerable and then becomes a target because of the way she's she's humiliated, like you say, in front of everyone, and everyone kind of turns away or allows it um, and is complicit in it because that's that's they that's the way they've been raised to to see it, and and no one steps in to help her because also they can't survive if they step in. You know, it's been exactly, made yeah. so clear that um, that to defend people like that is to kind of throw yourself on the chopping block mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's you're an easy target then to be to be claimed as being cursed or as being under the influence of the sea women, which is this kind of repeated and easy target there. They they make women because it's something they can say straight away and and you're shot down basically. And it's it's interesting that we're having this conversation this week. This where Roe versus Wade has just been overturned in the US, and a lot of the book deals with um, reproduction and control over women's reproduction in a way that is sort of even more complex. You realize as the novel goes on, um, <clears throat> and it it's it yeah it's it it's sort of a it's sort of a acts as a really you know I love the way that fiction like this can um, act as a kind of shining a light on just how linked these issues are of control and controlling society and controlling women, women's reproduction. And was that really clear to you right from the beginning that that was going to be part of this society, the way that their reproduction is, is controlled? Yeah, I'd read a lot of what you might kind of term as um, reproductive dystopians and um, I just found that the themes kind of horrifying but really like addictive to read because I think it feels so, and particularly now it's so uh, prescient to to our current times. And I'd read novels like um, Red Clocks and things like Blue Ticket by Sophie McIntosh. And I find those themes so frightening because it is such a, such a root of control and Mm. it's, 
it makes women incredibly powerless to have that to have a um a controlling body making those decisions for you because um and i think as well as someone that's disabled like body autonomy is mm-hmm. so important and so i think it's a theme that again is almost naturally interesting to me and i and i know it tends to be topics that arise kind of culturally socially politically as you're writing that that you're interested in that leak into your work even though mm-hmm. you maybe don't don't realize at the time that that's what they're doing um and it, it kind of various points as I was writing this novel there were headlines coming up about different countries maybe Poland and places mm-hmm. where yeah abortion laws were changing and those those news stories and those politics you can't escape from and I think your your fears do come into your writing frequently. Um, I hate that it is almost even worse this week because of what's happened in America. And but I think even even in kind of even this Western side of the world, you know, um, Northern Ireland, we you know there were laws of change, but the services aren't there. And in mm-hmm. the UK, um, the government are looking to re- repeal the um, Human Rights Act, and so. These things are never far away from yeah. our future. So although it's speculative, it is kind of frighteningly close to does, our reality. It, it does feel close, doesn't it? And I think that's what makes this fiction, I think, more important than ever. You know, like looking, um, it did, it did, your reading the book made me go back to the crucible and have a look at it again because I hadn't read it for probably since maybe university or something. And <clears throat> and you know, I'd sort of forgotten that, of course. You know, Arthur Miller had written that during the McCarthy era, mm. um, and and um, and there's so many different ways you can read a story like that. But I think it's so important that this is what art can do. It, you know, art can reflect the society it's in, and unfortunately, <laughs> this is very reflective of the society we're living in and the fears that we have, as particularly as women at the moment. Yeah, and I know there are some readers that would avoid the topic, and I and I had someone contact me the other day that said they have my book and they really want to read it, but now's the right, now's not the right time. And I, I totally respect that. But I know there are readers that always find it kind of weirdly comforting. It's almost like how during the early stages of the pandemic, everyone wanted to read station 11. And, uh, you know, I I think sometimes it's almost reassuring to read things that are about similar topics, but 10 times worse maybe I don't know what it is that appeals to people about exploring that darkness when you're kind of living through a darkness I'm not I'm not sure yeah I definitely find myself drawn to I guess in a way um there's something about the the satisfaction of moving through a narrative Mm. that's that's maybe not similar to what you're living through but has some um threads that are similar um something sort of deeply satisfying about that narrative arc that happens and that even if it's not a happy ending that there is some kind of resolution that is sort of you know hits somewhere inside you that is comforting somehow even if it's not happy um but so um I wanted to ask you a little bit about world building because there's a huge amount of world building like um so from both a creative and technical point of view this book required I'm sure just a lot of research but also a huge amount of decisions about how you were going to set this story because very early on in the first chapter it becomes apparent that that um that it's probably it's probably the future it's alluded to that um that the society that would have been on this island originally um was perhaps maybe three or 400 years ago, um, but it's not made a big deal of. It's just sort of giving us, just giving us a little bit of pinpointing in time, which I found really helpful. Um, but also um, I put I put the island in around the maybe like Scotland, um, Hebrides-ish. Uh, that was my guess, but I know it doesn't really matter. But mm-hmm. am I far off? Is that what you were imagining? You're, you're, you're pretty close. There is a specific place it is based on. Um, I won't. I won't reveal it because there are clues in the text. So maybe. Oh, I'm going to reread. Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing is, I'm really glad that you said it helped you because I was a very, very selfish writer when I began this novel, and very stubbornly said, uh, "I'm not saying when it's set, where it's set. I'm just. It's just going to be set 
some place, some time, and I'm not going to give any clues as to where. And first of all, when I started kind of building the island, I would pick bits and pieces from all over the world. So we'd have shells from kind of the southern hemisphere and we'd have weather from the northern hemisphere. And it was all the kind of mishmash of ideas, really. Um, because I was, as I said, very stubborn and I was <laughs> unprepared to to narrow it down to a particular place. And I'd read um, The Water Cure by Sophie McIntosh and she'd been very vague about when and where. And I was like, well, I'm going to do that and I'm not going to have anyone tell me otherwise. And then the more work I did on the novel and I, and I worked with um, an editor who said to me, I really think you need to kind of narrow it down and give it a bit more grounding and, and place and, and time. And I worked with my agent and she pretty much had similar. So I kind of begrudgingly thought, mm, okay, maybe they've got a point. Um, so then I decided, okay, so I'm, I'm going to have to set it in the future. And again, I didn't want to specify exactly when, because I'm sure there's going to be some science boffin that's going to email me and complain that, you know, you know, if the water levels rise, then such and such island wouldn't exist. And I thought, well, I don't want to get into the nitty gritty of all that. So we'll just kind of be unspecific about that. But um, yeah, I did a lot of research in terms of the specific island and the kind of birds that you'd find there and the kind of habitat. And finally, talk, going back to the cover, um, but originally the cover had, uh, the island was covered in trees. And I wrote Ooh, back, back yeah. to the editor and said, the island doesn't grow trees, so it can we get rid of the trees from the cover, <laughs> which was a really specific complaint, or not complaint, but a bit of feedback for the for the illustrator there. But yeah, yes, a lot of a lot of kind of world building happened, like you say, in layers. So one of the interesting bits of feedback I had from an editor was, okay, if it's not historical, you need to put a clue in the first couple of pages to hint to readers that it's not historical. So um, the editor suggested like a wristwatch or shoelaces. So um, I actually went with shoelaces and we have in the very, I think it's like the second page or something, Esther looks down at her shoelaces. And it's funny, a lot of readers haven't picked up on that, but I think maybe subconsciously they have because they then eventually realise it's not historical. And there are a few other clues in in the first chapter or two, isn't there? Because I remember thinking, feeling that, I think that's what I liked about, it gave me just enough to know that I'm not expecting it to be in 17 something. Yeah, and yeah. that I don't need to know when it is, but what I need to know is it's not, it's not this exact world now, 300 years ago kind of thing. Yeah, and it was like, yeah. that was sort of all I needed. Mm, kind of yeah. give myself I, a bit I, of a setting. I, I, hope, I hope it's not kind of frustrating for readers to, to not be given like an exact time period, but I quite like that disorientating feeling as a reader myself. So maybe that's why I kind of went towards it. But it's world building is a funny thing because it kind of happens in layers. And the more you write, the more you need to know. And I guess it's mm. if someone's researching historical fiction, they can't do all the research before they write. So you write and then you think, oh, well, what would they eat or what would they make? And I, I, I kind of sometimes drove myself a bit crazy trying to work out various like how would they trade and how would they get this and where would their clothes come from and and I I do have even though they don't make the page I do have kind of background and answers for all these things it's just not things that make the novel um because I have to have a logic to it myself I suppose yeah because there is a few plot points in the novel which involve a kind of you know the world beyond this island even though we don't hear much about it just you having to know how that happened yeah, yeah like we know you know it's fine I feel I mean, yeah, you need to feel in safe hands and you do yeah, you do yeah. feel in safe hands you're like Chloe knows the world she knows yeah. what's going on it's totally fine I can just follow the story and I think what I love about those little elements is that I can just I can just read the story and be immersed in that in that island in a very kind of incredible like I said it's you know very visceral and feels very very real and you don't have to be distracted by questions of how it all works because you've given us enough to not have to be wondering what's going on yeah that was the well that was the intention so I'm glad I'm glad it worked but <laughs> yeah it's 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 funny how things change as you write because one of the, obviously the the religious cult, cult aspect of the novel is so essential and so crucial um and things like so characters like the ministers were always there the keepers were always there the keepers almost I see them as like the police force in a way but mm. someone like Father Jessup who is such a central character 
he actually didn't exist in the first couple of drafts. Mm. Um, so it was more just this almost like invisible governing body. And then um, I did some more work on the novel and my agent and I worked together and we sort of realised there needs to be more of an antagonist of the novel, and, yeah. and which is, is quite strange really because Father Jessup is one of my favourite characters to write and I think he's just wonderfully horrible and unnerving and so I'm glad he emerged eventually um but yeah he for for a while that that aspect of the world building again the kind of cult aspect turned more into a religious cult and then I I wrote things like between some of the chapters are sections of like a fictionalized bible kind of doctrine really and and I wrote all those myself which again it was a, a really fun thing to do yes. um, but oh yeah gosh. getting to write I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down and write a religious text yeah <laughs> yeah it's amazing actually because that some of the some of the sections are like five sentences and yet they took me hours because I was I was looking at I was like using the bible I was using um speeches from dictators to kind of try and get the mm. language right and the rhythm of the sentences right and um it, you know writing something like that I wanted it to feel authentic and so even though it's only five sentences I, I really did agonize over those sentences they really do feel so fitting they really they and they add so much and, they, and in fact there's also not just those sections in between um, there's also the characters do quote from their kind of their religious book, mm. which I can't remember what do they what do they call the religious um, book? It's the great book. The great book, yeah. And they do quote from that, you know, on and off throughout, you know, as a lot of religious <laughs> communities do, quote directly from their um their book. So it does provide a very kind of I, I guess a way into trying to understand things from their perspective seeing what it is that these that particular Esther particularly has been raised on particularly because she's she um the relationship she has with her grandmother who raises her you know is is incredibly indoctrinated and um <clears throat> and so it's been a huge part of her life so the little snippets we get you just it just helps us to understand um what it is that they're being raised with yeah it's a, like a little shortcut into the world building I think I've I've read a couple of novels recently where people have uh, slipped in kind of fictionalized uh, songs or texts or um, uh, like history or rules or th- and it really really adds to the world building because I mean actually I, I did an interview the other week where someone's even quite actually said to me did you make those up and I was like yeah I did they're just completely yes, you know fiction, right <laughs> yeah but I think I think it was more they were so which is a great compliment they were so convinced that these were almost like real snippets of of doctrine really that I that I had convinced them so much (laughs) well you did an excellent job it really does put you right there in that kind of you know they're terrifying quite frankly they're really really terrifying um and it really helps put you right in the shoes of the women particularly who um who live under literally under under these words all the time but so on that note, do you imagine as a writer, do you want to explore lots of different genres or do you think you're found what you're really good at and what you love to do, which is building whole worlds? Um, that's really interesting. I don't, I, I guess I don't really see myself as a, um, I don't know, a genre writer as such. I, I can't, I, although I, who knows, because I did say to myself the other day, I was like, right, the next thing you write's got to be easier, <laughs> but but it never turns out that way because, of course, you know, you start writing something and it, it spirals off in in different directions. I think um, I'll probably be more of a, a thematic writer, like exploring similar themes. Mm. Um, I I don't I don't think I'll be venturing down the kind of fictional island or fictional place route again, um, just because I I mean I know I've had people that are you know desperate for a sequel or you know I know someone that's desperate for a prequel of this novel uh, and I think if I was to go down any route it'd probably be a prequel um but I I think I've I've moved on from that kind of world building side and I and I, and I might revisit it who knows I might I might decide to do kind of another another novel with a, a kind of fantastical edge or or another kind of speculative novel I am not working on that kind of novel at the moment but I, I can't definitely say in the future what it will be I think 
kind of your interests change and I read quite widely so I never I never feel kind of particularly penned in by a particular genre well I'm excited to to read whatever you've got to do next but I particularly love it when writers move around a little bit mm. and, that, and they might all um like you say kind of have thematic sort of links but you know that this idea that we all need to stick very strictly to one thing I'm, I'm not a big fan I'm really excited to to read what you're going to do next but mm. so um you did the Faber Academy and yeah. that's where the novel of this began is oh no the short story of this began so I did a creative writing master's at University of Kent in 2016 where I kind of wrote a short story which um, then became a version of the sea women though it wasn't called that and it was actually from a different perspective and then I applied for a a scholarship to the Faber Academy which I then won and so by that point I decided the novel that I was working on I was going to scrap but I wasn't going to scrap the idea I was just going to scrap the way I was doing it and I decided um, that it was going to be told from Esther's point of view so I'd already kind of had an idea of how to restart the novel and then I got onto the Faber course and that was where yeah I guess like almost the first draft of the Sea Women began um, although I was saying to a friend the other day who I met on the course I said weirdly the 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 text that I submitted in on the course for everyone to critique never made it into the novel but um it's just one of those things that gets lost along the way um through edits and changes and things but yeah I did the Faber Academy course in 2018 and honestly it was the best experience of my life ever it was absolutely incredible to be in a room with um I think it was 14 other people who were so obsessed with writing and Mm. dedicated to it and really determined to become writers really and I made some amazing friends on that course and we're we're still in touch and we're so such a supportive group and um it's just it was completely amazing experience and I I really miss it you know I kind of feel like I really want to be back there and I need the help for my new novel (laughs) (laughs) well it's just well it's so great as well because you know post-pandemic Faber have have kept some of their courses online which makes them even more accessible I didn't realize they did scholarships that's so exciting I'm going to find if I can find any links I'm going to put them in the show notes for anyone who's listening because that again you know there is such a problem with the publishing industry about access accessibility and courses like Faber and I know there are a number of other ones I've I know a few people have done Faber and have just been absolutely thrilled with it, but there are some other ones as well, as well as obviously the option to do an MA, but they, they're just not always accessible at all, you know, either financially or physically. So um, so it's just so exciting that there are, there are more opportunities now to get writers together because I think you're absolutely right. There's something about writers coming together and taking their work seriously, which just helps elevate everybody in the room. Yeah, I mean, you become such a better writer just from reading other people's work and sometimes you can see things that they do in their writing and you can go oh I'm not so sure about this because of this reason and then you know well you do it yourself and then sometimes it kind of it makes you reevaluate your own work and um it really helps clarify what's working and what's not and just it was it was just so great to be in a I mean I I just kind of now I mean now that's kind of school age is over I love being in that kind of learning environment I'm just a bit of a nerd really I think I just like learning and um so it's so nice to be around people that really want to kind of like further their knowledge and I, I just I just find it so interesting and and I I didn't weirdly I didn't do um like English literature at university or anything I did psychology so um I I always feel like I've got big gaps in my knowledge in terms of like uh, the classics or the academic side of of writing because I didn't I didn't study that really apart from like at school um, and so um, I love the the chance to be able to go and look at literature closely because I did enjoy it at school I just thought I was going to go down a different path when I when I uh, when I went to university and, and and that didn't happen but I'm I'm kind of I'm pleased that I diverted a bit and I've kind of got back on the the writing path now really. Yeah, no, I know. I completely agree. I'm just coming to the end of my master's degree at the moment. I'm doing my dissertation and there is, um, yeah, it's just so I'm, I'm equally nerdy. and I just love being in a room full of people talking about books on a really kind of deep line yeah. level. 
It's sort of, yeah, it's same. just deeply satisfying. <laughs> Very satisfying. Um, yeah, I mean, also, we're both have started podcasts just so we can talk to other writers. Yeah, exactly. I know. People always go, why? Why did you start? And I'm like, well, A, I love a chat. B, I just find it really interesting to hear other people talk about their process and how they get their ideas. And I am I find myself a bit of an, an um, outlier, really, when it comes to writing, because I'm not a writer that has 500 ideas and I'm, you know, I've got 12 novels on the go. It takes me a long time to come up with an idea and I have to be really, really committed to it. So I'm always like grilling people like, where did you get your idea? Because I want to know how to get more of them because <laughs> I feel like I'm really, I'm really sparse on ideas. So I'm always like, where did you get your idea and how did this develop? And yeah, I love, I love grilling people about those things. Oh, me too. Clearly, clearly we both, we both enjoy it. <laughs> But um, let's talk about your podcast for a moment because I have just loved it so much. I have bought a number of books. Um, and But I just, I love that it's focused on debut novelists. And please, please, please tell me that you're going to continue it even though you won't be a debut anymore. After- oh, yeah, definitely. I've got, I've got plans for 2023. The writers don't know it yet, but I will be hitting their publicists' email accounts and also contact them directly. I think next year I'm going to have to maybe approach it slightly differently just because I mean it's a great thing but this year I've been inundated with requests to be on the podcast and I love it and I want to spend my time doing it but I've basically said yes to everyone and um it's get gets to the point where you know like you I have to read a book I have to uh, come up with some questions and then conduct the podcast and then edit it and it's a long process and I, I love doing it and I really enjoy it and to be honest, things like the recording and the editing don't take me a huge amount of time, but the preparation takes a long time it and does. it's very time consuming. And, and, you know, I do have, I do have to write another book. So uh... yeah, there are other things you have to do. in Yeah. Life. Yeah. I <laughs> know. <laughs> I have to say like one of the time consuming things is, is, um, is being in touch with not actually usually the authors, but the publicists. Mm. It's quite time consuming. Um, it is sometimes a bit easier when you're directly in touch with the author instead. Yeah, yeah. But, um, I, I, but- to be honest, I normally go straight to the source if I can and just and just uh, contact the author. And because I'm an author as well, it, it does make it easier because and and also we do have um a debut 2022 group, which has been great because initially when I started the podcast, I just kind of floated it as an idea and said, What does everyone think? Does anyone want to take part? Because I when I came up with the idea, I was like, well, I think people will want to take part, but I need to kind of check first before I make any grand plans. Luckily, everyone was very keen. It's, is there, there's just sort of nothing better than I think being able to chat to another writer about writing. It's yeah, just, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm finding. It's, yeah, it's equal. We have, we have a similar problem to you on this podcast is that, um, you know, so many people would love the chance to be interviewed. And obviously it's really one of the worst bits is not being able to do everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many incredible books out there. Um, there's so many interesting um, people to speak to with totally different perspectives and who write in different genres and all sorts of things. Um, and I just wish I could do it full time. Maybe one day, maybe one day I'll earn lots of money from this. And so I can just literally do it all the time. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's such a, it does for me, I and mean, I'm sure it's similar for you, this idea that you can also, um, you know, share a spotlight with other authors who you really want other people to read. It just feels like such a wonderful thing to be able to do for other authors. Yeah. And I think that was another reason why I really wanted to do it because I felt like it gave people a chance to have a bit more publicity because I know the space for speaking about books and reviewing books is so small and, you know, it's very difficult to get a spot unless you're one of the lucky ones, really. And so I wanted to make sure that there were people who, if they wanted to uh, talk about their book, they had the opportunity to. And I think it's it's hard, particularly for people who have smaller deals or smaller publishers to get that time and to get that space. So I really, that's why I, I have kind of said yes to as many people as I've got space for. In fact, I've probably said yes to people that I haven't got space for, but I'm trying to fit them in anyway, because I wanted to give them the time, particularly because they're kind of like my cohort as well. And mm. I feel very, uh, very protective of them and very supportive of them. Um, but yeah, it, it is hard to to kind of fit everything in and fit everyone in. But I think it's a, it's a great chance for people to and I think there's so what I find so interesting is that there's so many different routes into publishing. And I feel like 
10 years ago, even five years ago, I didn't have a clue. Didn't have a clue about agents. I didn't know what one was. I didn't know how to get one. And I think without the Faber course, I definitely wouldn't have known how to get one. And it's really been interesting to hear so many different stories about people who people have got their agent or have got a book deal. Because if I'd been listening as like an aspiring writer, it would have given me hope and made me think, okay, there's not just one prescriptive way of doing this. Mm. There are multiple avenues. Not everyone's done a course. Some people have done a course. Some people um, have got their agents through competitions. Some people have got them through the usual way of querying. And I just think it's really interesting to hear all the different stories, all the different backgrounds people have got. And um, and I know when I was kind of before I'd even got an agent, I think I used to listen to the Riff Raff podcast. I don't know whether you know Ooh, of I that. I don't know that one. Yeah, so it doesn't exist anymore. I think they stopped um, at the beginning of 2020. And um, they pretty much used to do similar. So they would, I think they interviewed, I think debuts, but maybe people had done maybe one novel or two novels. Um, and they they did similar to what I do. And then because they weren't around anymore, I, I really felt like there was a gap. And I really wanted to give that spotlight to debuts because it is hard. And we've been so lucky to have this sort of supportive group. And I know many of us kind of feel like, what would we have done without that network really? And particularly because we started chatting when we were in like the second lockdown and people were panicking about, you know, where bookshops even going to be open sort of by the time our books came out and stuff. So it being particularly handy kind of in, in this period we've had. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing about publishing, you know, right. You know, people talk about writing being a bit lonely, but you know, publishing is also quite lonely. It does feel it's a big it's a big thing and it's very different to the actual writing as well. And so to be able to kind of um, hear straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak, um, about what the process is like, um, is it is so helpful. And I listened to a lot of podcasts before I wrote my first proposal and got my first agent as well. Um, and it was something about listening that made, reminded me that not only could I get some information if I need to, but also that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the only crazy person spending all this spare time that you didn't, I didn't really have um, doing something that may or may not end up happening. Um, and it is, it does really help. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I've, I've done this podcast is because I do think that, you know, for no money at all, you know, somebody can be listening and not feel alone with what it is that they're trying to achieve in their own little tiny corner of the world. Um, because there's so many people that have done it and if they can share their stories, it does help. But, um, but so on that note, how, so did your, you, um, your agent came sort of through the Faber course in the end, was it, did they, the Faber Academy share some of some excerpts from, from people who are doing the course and, and your agent came through that process? Yeah. So what happens is at the end of the course, they put kind of, I think it's a section of, uh, your first chapter, or I think it's usually your first chapter is maybe, uh, two and a half thousand words they put it in an anthology and then they those get sent out to mainly kind of agents in London um, or kind of top agents in the country and the day the anthology went out I got an email from Nell Andrew and me being clueless had no idea who she was um, had particularly no idea that she'd just been nominated for uh, literary agent of the year and she emailed me and said how much she loved it and she said she always starts the anthology at the back because she figures everyone starts at the front. And because I'm a T, I'm right near the end. Oh, uh, so which was a, a great way of her discovering me. And yeah, she she said, let's have a let's have a chat on the phone. So we spoke on the phone for, for quite a long time, actually. And I know a lot of people say that finding the right agent is almost like dating and you have to kind of get on and you have to figure out whether you're right for each other. And the way the vision she had for the book was so in line with what I saw but at that point it was September 2018 and I just said to her like I haven't finished and I don't want to promise you something and then it's not up to you know the standard it should be so she said well I'm prepared to wait and just keep in touch and send it to me when you're ready and and it's funny because I have a very different memory of this period in time to what she does and I only found out recently when she gave a speech at my launch party how it was from her perspective and from her perspective she was desperate for me to <laughs> sign on the dotted line and and she want, really desperately wanted me as her client 
And from my perspective, I was so uncertain and so nervous and kept saying, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. And she kept having visions of me running off and, and going with someone else. And I just kept having visions of me disappointing her. So we were completely like polar opposite. And it took until March of 2019. And I went out for dinner with um, some friends from who I'd met at the Faber Academy. And they were like, for God's sake, why have you not sent her any more chapters? And I was like, it's not ready. It's not ready. And they're like, just send her some more. So after that lunch, I um, I sent her an email, nailed an email and said, um, you know, I've, I've done some more work. Like, how would you feel about me sending you five five chapters? And she was like, great. But, you know, I'd really like to read them. I'm at London Book Fair, so I'll get back to you by Friday. And I think this was like Tuesday. And then Wednesday morning, she'd already read it. <laughs> she was like, uh, I was really nervous because obviously when you read an extract of someone's work, you're not 100% sure whether the rest of it's going to live up to it. But she was like, I love it so much. Please come to my office like next week. So um, I went up to see her and I already knew I wanted to sign with her at that point. But I had, I had to kind of listen to her <laughs> telling me, you know, how amazing I was and how great the book was and the kind of the vision she saw for it. And then I told her at the end, like, well. I just I just want to sign with you and and that and that was it really but and she kind of screamed her head off with excitement but yeah it was it was such a weird process and uh, I'm so grateful that I didn't have to go down the the querying route and I did have a couple of other agents contact me after they'd read the extract in the Faber anthology but Nell was Nell was the one and and mm-hmm. I knew straight away it's like you have this kind of gut feeling and 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 she's she's been number one from day one and I'm just so grateful for her and she's she's incredible and the work that she kind of did with me on the novel completely transformed it and she's uh she's like my biggest cheerleader so yeah I'm very I'm very grateful for her. I am happy to give anyone airtime that loves and wants to rave about their agents I think agents (laughs) are so so undervalued mm. um, and I I had because I've had obviously an agent as a photographer for you know like you know a very long time as well and had to deal with a lot of agents way back when I was a photographer's assistant and I think the job is so specialized and so important and um and for somebody having a you know creative career and having to work on your own which mo- a lot of creative people have to do an agent is just this kind of can be such a beacon <laughs> And really kind of help hold people together and help you really envision how you, you want your career to go and not just what you're exactly working on right this minute, but, you know, the bigger picture and stuff. And I just think they're just worth their weight in gold. So we love yeah. hearing great <laughs> stories. <laughs> they're so worth the money that you give them. They're so worth it. Um, well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was just such a delight. Um and um, I knew that we would have lots to talk about as two people who love talking to other writers. <laughs> um, please, everybody, immediately go out and buy The Sea Women. It is just incredible and completely immersive and just be absolutely beautifully written and in such an incredible setting. And Esther, wow, what a, what a protagonist she is. She's such an incredible one. Um, and <clears throat> obviously I'm not going to say anything, but I loved the ending so much. Um, <laughs> So thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much, Penny. It's been lovely. I could have chatted you, to you for like another hour. So it's been, it's been really great. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can buy all the books recommended on the podcast at uk.bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash not too busy to write, where a portion of each sale goes to support independent bookshops around the country. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe or follow. And please leave a review. It really helps others to find the podcast.